We just sang the words of an old familiar song written by Fanny J. Crosby, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. But you know, in fact, sometimes faithful Christians go through life without that blessed assurance that we sing about. They go through life without really knowing whether they're in a saved condition or not. When was the last time that you heard a member of the church say with confidence, yes, I know that I'm saved? More often than not, if a Christian is asked the question, do you know that you're saved? The answer goes something like this. Well, I hope that I am, or I think that I am, or I really don't know if I'm saved or not. This morning we're continuing the sermon series on the subject, Questions That Deserve Answers. So far in this series, we've studied the answers to these four questions. Is the Bible truly the Word of God? Was Jesus truly the Son of God? Is there only one true church? And is baptism necessary for salvation? And we've studied from the Bible why the answer to all of those questions is absolutely yes. So, the question that we're studying and answering this morning is like the others, a question that involves Bible doctrine and also false doctrine. But this question is unlike the others in one way. The question today is mainly, mainly directed toward members of the church. Those who have heard the gospel, believed, repented, confessed Christ, and been baptized for the remission of sins. And the answer to the question is one that, that some members of the church may not be sure about. And that might include some members here today. So the question that deserves an answer today is the question, can we know 
that we are saved. I recently read the account of a preacher in the church who took a poll or a survey in one particular congregation to find out what kind of blessed assurance the members had about their eternal salvation. The members didn't know who was conducting the survey or why, so that didn't have any effect on their answers. And this was a congregation of about 200 members in the heart of what is often called the Bible Belt in one of the southern states. The preacher asked several different questions in the survey, but one of the questions pertained to each member's eternal destiny. And here's that question that he asked. He asked the question, if you died within the next 10 minutes, do you believe you would be saved in heaven? And here are the survey results from that particular congregation of the church on that question. About 10% of the members knew without a doubt that if they died at the time they were taking the survey, they would not be saved in heaven. They knew they would be lost eternally in hell. 10%. About 50% of the congregation was not sure whether or not they would be saved in heaven. And only 40% believe they would be saved in heaven if they died that very day. So in other words, about 60% of the congregation, over half, either knew they were lost or they didn't know if they were in a safe condition. Now, pay attention to this next point. God did not send his son to die on the cross for us so that we could be uncertain about our salvation. Jesus came so that we might know that we are forgiven and free from sin. John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus came so that we might know that we have eternal life. In the text in 1 John chapter 5 that Jaron read, the Apostle John wrote in verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 
If we are faithful Christians, then we can be confident, not proud and not bragging and not arrogant, but we can be assured of the salvation that we have. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in that passage says that we are to wear around our heads, like a helmet, the hope of our salvation. And why is that? Because God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. As it often is with any issue involving disagreement, there are two extremes when dealing with this subject of having assurance of our salvation. Two extremes. And you know, as is often the case, the truth lies between those two extremes. So let's look first today in our lesson at two extreme views of salvation. The first extreme and incorrect view is that there can be no security in salvation. No security in salvation. Many Christians today may feel that there is no way for them to know if they're saved or not. Just like the members in the poll that the preacher took. They don't know if they're pleasing to God. They don't know if their salvation is secure. In 1 John 5, 13, that we already read, John was very clear that the words he had written and his reason for writing was so that we would believe and we would know that we have eternal life. And the point that I want to make today in the sermon is that it is possible to know. And we can know if we have eternal life. Now, one reason that we may not know that is often because we look at our lives and we realize that we've done things wrong. We've not been obedient to the Lord at all times, in all things. Even after we've been baptized into Christ and obeyed the commands for salvation. In other words, we fall short. We fall short. And the problem is that we're trying to be justified by our own good works. 
we look at our lives and since we've not been perfect in our living for God, even after becoming a Christian, then we may doubt our salvation. We may doubt that we have eternal life. But we need to come to the understanding and the realization that salvation is not merited. It's impossible to earn our salvation. Let this sink into your minds this morning. We can't be good enough. You and I can't do enough good things to wipe out our sins. Another way that we sometimes look at this question is that we keep something like a ledger in our minds. And we tally up all the good things that we've done and the bad things that we've done. And we think that if we have more good deeds than bad, more good than bad, then we'll be saved and we'll have eternal life. So we live our lives in doubt because we don't know. We don't know if we've done enough good things to balance out the bad. You know, in New Testament times, that's exactly, that's exactly what the Pharisees believed that it took to receive salvation. And that's exactly what the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 was talking about when he asked Jesus the question, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You know, we could say that he was wanting to tip the scales in his favor. He wanted a, a big plus on his ledger sheet. But that's a false idea. That's a false idea. Because there aren't enough good works that we can do. There's not one good thing that will put you and me over the top in the face of sin. The reason for obedience is not to try to merit salvation. We need to resign ourselves and understand the fact that it can't be earned. And that was the point that Paul was trying to get across to the Jews when he said in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short in the sight of in the glory of God. And in the same chapter in verse 10 he said, there is none righteous, no not one. So that's the first extreme and incorrect view of salvation. It's the false idea that there can be no security in salvation. 
Now, the second and opposite extreme teaches that once you're saved, it's impossible to lose that salvation. It's the idea that once a person becomes a child of God, there's no sin that they can commit to lose their salvation. Another name for that false idea, that false doctrine, is once saved, always saved. Many, many people today find that doctrine to be of great comfort, naturally, because it basically relieves them of all personal responsibility in their relationship with God. After all, if we're saved and there's nothing we can do to be lost, then it really doesn't matter how we behave or how we act or what we do or what we don't do. So we don't need to worry too much about it. The truth is that this is a very dangerous doctrine because it deceives people into thinking that their relationship with God is secure when it really is not. And you may not realize it, but that false doctrine has been around for a long, long time. In fact, the early Christians in the church had to deal with it during the first and second centuries. During that time, there was a false doctrine known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And part of that ancient doctrine of Gnosticism was the idea of once saved, always saved. And that same idea is still being taught by false teachers today. For example, Billy Graham was once asked the question, how big a sin do you have to commit before you lose your salvation? And his answer was this. He said, I am convinced that once a person sincerely and honestly trusts Christ for his or her salvation, they become a member of God's family forever. And nothing can change that relationship. In other words... Once saved, always saved. The standard manual for Baptist churches says this, and I'm quoting right from it. We believe that the scriptures teach that those born of the Spirit will not utterly fall away and perish, but will endure unto the end. A special providence watches over their welfare and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, once saved, always saved. The website of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church says this. 
The Orthodox Presbyterian Church believes and teaches that an elect person is eternally secure in God's saving grace and cannot lose his salvation. That false doctrine teaches that grace covers all sins, regardless of the person's attitude towards sin. Or again, once saved, always saved. The book of Colossians was written by Paul in rejection of the idea of Gnosticism. And the book of 1 John was written by John in part to refute the idea, the false idea of once saved, always saved. And notice what Jude told his readers to beware of when he wrote his letter in Jude verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So what were those false teachers doing according to Jude? He says that they had taken the grace of God and they were teaching that you can practice any immoral act and still be saved. But Jude says they were condemned. The parable of Jesus, of the vine and the branches, proves that it is possible for a Christian to fall away and be lost. John 15, verse 6, Jesus said, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The branches in that parable represent individual Christians. In Galatians 5 verse 4, Paul was very clear that our salvation can be lost. Paul says this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul was talking there about false teachers who were saying and teaching that you cannot fall from grace. But Paul says that they had fallen from grace. So you see, we can lose our salvation. That's why Jude 1 verse 3 says that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12 that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's why the writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 2 verse 3 that we must not neglect so great a salvation. So the idea that salvation cannot be lost or once saved, always saved, that is the second extreme and false view of salvation. 
soul. Where then is our hope of salvation and eternal life? Where is our blessed assurance of salvation that we sing about? Where is it? In other words, how can we know that we are saved? Well, as we already said, the truth lies between those two false views about salvation that we just talked about. Of all the books in the Bible, of all the books in the Bible, there's probably no greater book on the subject of assurance to the Christian than the book of 1 John. The inspired writer John used the word know over 30 times in the little book of 1 John. And it's just five chapters long. To know something is to be confident of something as a fact. If the faithful Christian, the faithful Christian, were to die unexpectedly, he or she can know or have assurance of salvation. And in the rest of the lesson today, we're going to see why that's true. Right here, I want us to look at and think about a passage, <clears throat> a passage in the book of 1 John. And it's a passage that Brother Guy in Woods called the single most wonderful thing for the Christian taught in the Bible. That passage is 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Here's what it says. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, the idea of walking in the Bible is a very common description of the Christian life. And it's a good one. Because walking suggests an approach to a goal. And that's exactly what the Christian life is. It's a walk from earth to heaven. And the goal is eternal life. But that walk is not just anywhere or everywhere. John tells us that it must be in the light. In the light. Now, light is often a synonym for truth. And darkness would symbolize error, falsehood. So to walk in the light is to live by the truth. 
the truth of God's word. And for those who do that, John says that the blood of Christ cleanses. Now, the word cleanses there in verse 7 is in the Greek present tense. And so it means always cleansing, constantly cleansing, continually cleansing. It's a continuous process, but, but, there's a very important condition. And the condition is in that same verse. John says in verse 7, if, if we walk in the light. So we have to be walking in the light to receive that continual cleansing. We have to live as God has told us to live to the best of our ability. And we have to obey him for us to receive that cleansing. <clears throat> Believing that once we're baptized to become a Christian, we can do whatever we want to do and live the way we want to live, that is not walking in the light of God. And you know, sadly, sadly, that's exactly what sometimes happens to people after they're baptized. As we already said, salvation can be lost. And we can fall from grace. But the faithful Christian, the faithful Christian who is walking in the light, should find comfort in knowing that he or she does not have to be sinlessly perfect to be saved in heaven. And you know that's, that's a point right there that some preachers in the church are sometimes reluctant to make. But it's still true. Brother Guy Ann Woods once preached a sermon called The Security of the Believer. And in that sermon, he said this, Concerning this text in 1 John chapter 1, he said, It teaches us that sins involving frailties, weaknesses, and unintentional lapses are continually cleansed as we walk in the light of God's truth. This is a state of grace, not of human perfection. And we should be ever more thankful that in spite of our imperfections, we may enjoy grace through his approval. You see, the child of God still sins, still misses the mark, still falls short. As we already mentioned, Romans 3.23 says... All have sinned, all, 
and fall short of the glory of God. But the faithful child of God who is truly walking in the light does not go from saved to lost and then back to saved and then back to lost several times a day. If we're truly walking in the light in our lives, then we don't jump in and out of salvation like a frog jumps in and out of water. We're in, we're out. We're in, we're out. And I've heard that idea preached and taught in the church. And maybe you have too. For over 25 years, Brother Guy M. Woods conducted between 40 and 50 gospel meetings a year around the country. And he told this story about one of those meetings. I recall being in a meeting a few years ago in an Arkansas town, and I sat in a Bible class on the Lord's Day of the meeting. There was a brother, not a preacher, but a man of some ability, who taught the lesson to a group of older adults, all of whom, so far as I know, were faithful Christians. He was taking the position that in spite of and despite the fact that they did the best they could, they still might not be able to make it to heaven. And amazingly, a number in the class agreed. I regard that as a reflection on the grace of God, as an insinuation that he offers us salvation, but he puts it up there just a little bit beyond our ability to reach. That's a great commentary on this subject that we're talking about today. You see, God doesn't ask us to do the impossible. He doesn't ask us to do what we're not able to do. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Now, the Bible tells us to make every effort Make every effort. For example, 2 Peter 3.14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. But the faithful Christian who is walking in the light, for that person... The Lord does not count our sins against us. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 used a quote from David that says this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute 
sin. Now the word impute there in verse 8 appears 11 times in the New King James Version of the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. And it means to charge to someone's account or to put to someone's credit or to chalk up against someone. That passage in Romans 4 is saying to us that there's a relationship there's a relationship that a faithful Christian can be in with God in which there is not an imputing of sin. And that simply means that God does not charge it to their account. And why? Why is that? It's because he or she is in a relationship with God where God cancels it out. And what is that relationship? As we walk in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses. And if we keep on walking in the light, the blood keeps on cleansing. So what does it mean to be a faithful Christian? Now, we could spend a whole sermon just on that question, but here are four answers from the Bible. For one thing, we must have a forgiving spirit toward others. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive me in their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive me in their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, God will not forgive us of our sins if we're not willing to forgive others of theirs. It's that simple. Secondly, our forgiveness is also based upon our willingness to confess our sins. In Psalms 19, 12, and 13, David says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression." And in 1 John chapter 1 that we study from today, John goes on to say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess the sins that we're aware of and realize that there are many others that we may not be aware of. And our confession must be as public as the sin. A sin known only to God should be confessed only to God and not to a so-called prayer partner. 
A sin on just a one or a few should be confessed to the one or the few, as the case may be. A public sin should be confessed before the church. And we should pray to God that he will help us to do better and that our sins will be forgiven. And if we're truly walking in the light and our lives are in harmony with God's word, then we should not worry that God will hold our sins against us. Thirdly, we also must pursue faithfulness. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As we already said today, there aren't enough good works for us to do to earn our salvation. And as we just read, salvation is a gift of God by His grace. But if we're truly walking in the light and pursuing faithfulness, folks, the good works are going to be there. James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then fourth, we also must pursue holiness. 1 Peter 1.14-16 says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter is saying there that we should not be content with ignorance, but pursue holiness in our conduct. And that means that in our conduct, we are to be set apart from the world. Thankfully, our salvation is based upon Christ's meritorious work and not ours. So we shouldn't be wondering if we're good enough to be saved in heaven. Because we aren't. We aren't. We never will be. But we can still go there. Brother V.P. Black was a well-known gospel preacher in the church for almost 50 years. His teaching was challenging and biblical, and he sometimes got strong criticism from weak brethren. B.P. Blatt once made this comment relating to our subject today. 
He said, the man of whom God will not mark up his mistakes, his blunders, his shortcomings, is this faithful, dedicated child of God who is walking in the light, giving his best to the master, doing his very best to serve God. In just 41 words, that's a good summary of the sermon today. During the first part of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, during the early 1930s, no safety devices were used. None. And 23 workers working on that bridge fell to their deaths. But during the last part of the project, a large safety net was installed that cost $100,000. At least 10 workers fell into that net and were saved, like in the picture. But the interesting result is the fact that 25% more work was accomplished on the bridge when the men had the assurance of their safety. And that same principle can be true in the church for those who are walking in the light. Are you doing that today? Are you walking in the light? Today, if you're not a part of God's family, the one true church, then you have no hope. You have no assurance of the salvation that we talked about today. But you can have that blessed assurance today by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. By repenting of your sins, by confessing the name of Christ, by then being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins, and then by walking in the light as a child of God, living faithfully in a right relationship with Him. If you need to respond to the invitation today in any way this morning, to confess public sin in a public way, ask for the prayers of the church, or to obey the gospel. Christ invites you to come today. As together we stand and sing.